I'm John Doberstein, Senior Editor at No-Till Farmer, and welcome to the latest edition of our 2019 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Fighting Through the Evolving Landscape of Row Crop Diseases and Finding No-Till Profitability, is sponsored by Yitter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is currently available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about episodes that come up when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Gator Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Gator Manufacturing is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment in tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find your solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Diseases in no-tilled row crops are often unpredictable, which leads to a growing environment for plants that is constantly in flux. Resistant diseases such as frog eye leaf spot are spreading each year. Target spot is emerging as a new important driver of disease in southern soybeans and southern rust is moving further north each year, says Carl Bradley. Plant pathologist at the University of Kentucky will discuss how no-tillers can stay ahead of new disease pressure and further development of resistant diseases, how disease management can fit into the overall program for no-tilling row crops, and how new research and technology can help growers get an upper hand in disease management. I'm Carl Bradley. I'm a a plant pathologist at the University of Kentucky. Prior to uh, being at the University of Kentucky, I was at the University of Illinois as an extension plant pathologist for about eight years. And so I'm actually going to show you a little bit of data from some of the work that I did uh, at Illinois, as well as uh, more recently at the University of Kentucky. So probably, if any of you have ever heard a plant pathologist talk, you would probably be disappointed if you didn't see the disease triangle. I think this is probably our our favorite slide to show, and I know that many of you are probably familiar with this, but this is kind of the, the building blocks of how a plant disease happens. So you have to have all three of these things uh, all at the same time for a plant disease to occur. So obviously you have to have the susceptible host, so that would be you know corn or soybean or, or wheat, whatever crop you're growing. You have to have the, the plant pathogen has to be present in that field. And then usually the the biggest driver here, those two things normally are are already out there, but usually the biggest driver is the environment and what kind of of weather uh, that that we've had. That's usually the one that really drives all of this. And I'm at a no-till conference and I love the benefits that that we get uh, from from producing crops using a no-till system. Uh, One thing that, that, that you all probably already know and that you always have to keep in mind is that when you're in a no-till system, you probably are uh, affecting that inoculum to some degree because a lot of the pathogens that we deal with overwinter on that stubble. So anytime we're in a no-till system, we probably are bumping up just a little bit that pathogen part of this equation. 
And then, of course, a change in any of those factors can result into a, uh, a disease epidemic. So, you know, if we get the right weather, I know this year in, in some parts of the Midwest, I think Michigan, if there's anybody here from Ontario, I know that there was some major gibberella ear rot problems in corn this year, and a lot of that had to do with just getting a lot of rain, especially towards the, the later part of the season. And so anytime one of those things change, that's when we end up with a big epidemic, and, and that's when we have problems with diseases. So as I mentioned, under a no-till system, probably our biggest threat from diseases are those that are stubble-borne, those that live and survive on that crop residue that's, that's, up on, that's on the soil surface. So the risk for some of these diseases that are stubble-borne probably goes up just a little bit under a, a no-till system. Uh, in this picture here, you can see a corn stalk. Depending on how close you are to the screen, you might be able to see some little dots on that, on that corn stalk. So that's actually just a sign of, uh, it's actually the, the gibberella ear rot pathogen that's producing these things called parathesia that we can see. That's also the same pathogen that causes uh, fusarium head blight or scab, and I know that there's some information from Syngenta about uh, a new product and how it can control scab uh, on your table. Same pathogen that causes scab. So keep in mind that some of our diseases are coming from that stubble that, that's on the soil surface. So because of that, uh, I think, in, in my opinion, of course I always think this since I'm a plant pathologist, but I think that under this type of system, plant diseases, you, that should be a thought on your mind that should maybe be elevated a little bit more, management of diseases under this type of system. And so it should be even more important to think about resistant varieties or hybrids, thinking about crop rotation as, as part of your system and helping reduce that inoculum in the, in the years that you don't have the host crop planted out in the field. And also fungicides, that should be a consideration that you might want to think about, you know, depending on the year, depending on the risk of, of disease that's out there, and of course, depending on the type of observations that you're making when you're out there scouting your fields. So some of these disease risk factors, those can really help you kind of take into account how, what the risk is for a certain disease in your field. There's different factors that will influence that risk level. Some of these things you probably know right now, uh, even before you've planted. You're probably, or, or at least you're making some of these decisions if you haven't already, you're probably gonna know what hybrid or variety you're gonna plant in a specific field. So just knowing how susceptible that hybrid or variety is to some of the consistent diseases that you see year in and year out, especially under this system where the inoculum may be at a little bit greater amount out in that field. So know how susceptible, you know, know those seed company ratings, and if you can get ratings from your university extension source as well, sometimes universities have programs where they'll screen for certain diseases and, and provide some of that data. So checking out those varieties and know how susceptible they are to, to the diseases that you commonly see. Also, you should know kind of what, how, how much residue that you have on the soil surface of the crop that you're getting ready to plant. So if you're, if you're planting corn, you should have an idea of how much corn stubble is left on that field. And of course, the greater amount of corn stubble that would be out there, the more likelihood that we would have a little bit more inoculum or for potential disease out there as well. And planting date to some degree, now you, you probably don't really know your planting date right now. You, you, you wish you probably would. You'd like to, to put that on the, on the calendar and say, this is the day I'm gonna go out and plant. Mother Nature has, a, has a, a lot to do with that planting date, but that can also have some effect on, on plant diseases. Uh, just for an example, I'll talk about southern rust of corn here in, in just a little bit, 
But that's an example where if you were delayed in your, in your corn planting, just because of the nature of, this, of the way that southern rust moves, you might be at a little bit more risk for some of those later planted corn, corn fields versus some of the earlier planted corn fields. So planting date also has some effect here, although we can't really control that lots of times. And then of course, our major thing that really drives disease that we have no control over and is really occurs after we've, we've planted the crop is the weather. And uh, mo most specifically, rainfall is probably the biggest driver when we're talking about plant diseases. Uh, the fungi that cause a lot of our foliar diseases really need wet leaves to cause infection. So anytime we have a really rainy growing season, likelihood of seeing more foliar diseases is gonna be greater. And then relative humidity can also play a role to some degree. Of course, you know, dew is another way that those, those leaves can remain wet for a long period of time. So if we have some really high humidity days where the, the dew sticks around for a long period of time, we're more likely to see some of those foliar diseases as well. At least the risk is going to be elevated. So kind of thinking about all these different risk factors and thinking about those as just different rungs on a ladder, and, and the more rungs that you have on that ladder, the more of these things, these risks that go together, the more likelihood that you're, there's gonna be a potential disease issue out in that field. And so that's, those are the things that you need to consider when you're thinking about potential management practices that you want to deploy to try to, to manage these diseases. Okay, I'm gonna jump right into some data. Obviously, fungicides are, are one of the ways that we can think about managing diseases along with crop rotation and choosing the right variety as well. But in, there's some years and some, some fields that, that fungicides might be needed to help, help protect your yields and, and uh, protect against some diseases. So when I was at the University of Illinois, I would have some fun, foliar fungicide trials that I would conduct. I came to, to U of I in, in 2007. And then in 2008, we started up this program where we had, uh, we're testing foliar fungicides at different locations in the state. So you can see all those blue counties that were marked there. That's all the locations that I had trials. And then over in that table, you can see the, the years in which we, we uh, conducted a trial at those locations. So in total, if you take all those locations and years, I had 45 environments that were represented here. We would apply those fungicides around tassel emergence up to about silking. So kind of that timing that most of you are probably still trying to target, which I, I feel like is, is, is a good timing for, for managing uh, uh, foliar diseases. That's probably the timing where you're gonna get your uh, biggest bang for your buck in regards to protecting uh, those leaves, those important leaves and, and providing uh, uh, protection against diseases. So that's when we were making those applications. <clears throat> We tested these over a number of systems where we had, you know, some cases we, we had no-till, some cases we, we didn't. Uh, a lot of cases where we had some resistant varieties, some that we had susceptible varieties. And so I've kind of just lumped all these together, but it's kind of interesting how it all kind of sorts out, and I'll show you that in a minute. We did not do any artificial inoculation of, of diseases in these trials. We just relied on mother nature. And in, in Illinois, I would say gray leaf spot is probably the most common disease that we typically would observe, and that was kind of true for this trial. Although there was occasion where we had some southern rust come in a little bit in some of these trials, and maybe some northern leaf blight, 
But for the most part, gray leaf spot is, is really what we're looking at when I'm talking about disease in these particular trials. And of course, I'm, a, I'm not an econo uh, economist, but you know, it's always important to think about, obviously, for all of you, you think about this all the time, right? Is this gonna be profitable for me to spray a fungicide or not, or to, to do whatever type of management practice? That's something that you always have to think about. So just from a plant pathologist, very simplistic view of, of ag economics, I've got this table up here that basically you're looking at uh, that first column is, is the corn price, dollars per bushel. That, second, that first row under application costs, it gives you some potential prices per acre that you might be paying for, for the fungicide and the application costs. And then those numbers in the middle there are basically your break-even, okay? So just, just to make it simple and use some, some solid round numbers here, let's just say that the corn price is about $3 per bushel and you were, you were spending $24 an acre to, to spray the fungicide. So that means that you would need, doing simple math, you'd need eight bushels return that's, the, kind, that's the, the yield response you would basically need to, to break even, right? Okay, so keep that number in mind. I know that that's not really exactly the scenario we're dealing with right now, but keep that in mind, and we'll, we'll look at some data here. So what you're looking at, and I know this is going to be a little bit complicated, so stick with me here. There's, there's going to be a lot of bars that I'm going to show you, but I think it's not too bad if you, if you just stick with me. What, what you're looking at here in this first set of data, this is, this is the data over all 45 environments that we had these trials. That very first blue bar, the shortest one there, that's our average yield response, and that was 5.3 bushels per acre. Okay, so over all of our trials, that's what we saw. Okay, and, and we mixed, we have different products here. I just averaged it all together. I'm not, I'm not, I didn't take into account which product was which. We just kind of lumped them together and, and, and just kind of doing a, a very broad look at these things. So overall, 5.3 bushels per acre. Then I have those other bars. That orange bar is basically the frequency of how often we had at least three bushels per acre yield response. And so that happened 60% of the time. Uh, it would be nice if corn prices would go up where that's all we needed to, to, uh, to be profitable. Unfortunately, they're, they're not quite at that level. That next, that gray bar is the frequency of achieving at least five bushels an acre. Then the yellow one is the frequency of achieving at least eight bushels an acre. And then finally, that last one is a frequency of achieving at least 11 bushels per acre. But let's stick with this, this yellow one here. Let's, let's just say that we needed eight bushels per acre yield response to be profitable. In, in my data, in this set, that would have happened 42% uh, of the time, okay? So not quite as good. You know, you can flip a coin and guess right a little bit more often. So let's, let's look at this a little bit differently and, and look at breaking these down into some different disease categories. So this next set here is looking at low disease pressure. So what we do is after we spray those fungicides, we would go back out about somewhere between four and six weeks later and we would, would rate, we would visually rate the amount of disease that was out there in, our, in our, each plot and what we're looking at here is, is how much disease was in our untreated check at that point in time. So these are what I would call low disease pressure. We're less than 10% of the ear leaf in those trials in our untreated check. There was less than 10% of the leaf area affected in our untreated check. And in this case, our, our average yield response was lower. It was only 2.8 bushels per acre. And we would achieve that eight bushels per acre yield response only about a third of the time, 32% of the time. 
Conversely, in 17 of those 45 environments, we had what I would call moderate to high levels of disease pressure, where in our untreated check, when we went back out to rate after we had made those applications, we had at least 10% of that leaf area that was affected by diseases. And then in this case, our average yield response went up to about 10 bushels per acre. And you can see that more than half the time, about 60% of the time, we would have achieved at least an eight bushel an acre yield response, okay? So what I'm really trying to show here is you need to think about that disease risk. And when I'm, when I'm looking at this scenario over here on the right, those are situations where we were planting a susceptible hybrid. Maybe in some cases we were going continuous corn and obviously the weather, I heard somebody say weather a few minutes ago, weather obviously played a role in those situations. And if I were to go back and go through those risk assessments, this, these would be the scenarios where it would make a lot of sense to be spraying those fungicides. So keep in mind that fungicides are something that we need to consider on a field-by-field -field basis and a system-by-system -system basis. And when you do that, you're probably going to make more profitable decisions about when to use those foliar fungicides in corn. So basically the bottom line was we had a greater chance of being profitable when we were actually had a, a level of disease out there that was uh, worth controlling based on our, our risk. And under low disease risk, our fungicides, although there were cases where we were profitable, uh, we, we saw that ended up being not as consistent. So again, focusing on disease risk and scouting when you're thinking about making a, a fungicide application decision is very important. We'll rejoin Carl's conversation about controlling crop diseases and no-till systems in a moment, but I'd like to thank Yater Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yater Manufacturing is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment in tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Carl Bradley as he highlights some new crop diseases on the rise, such as tar spot in corn and target spot in soybeans and how to address them, as well as some twists on older plant diseases like northern corn leaf blight, and frog eye leaf spot that no-tillers should be aware of as they decide on a plan for potential treatment. Part of my title, I think, had the word disease landscape in there and how things are changing, so I wanted to address that a little bit. Uh, there's always changes, as you well know, uh, being a farmer, there, there's always changes that are occurring year in and year out. You're dealing with things a lot differently now than you were 30 years ago, okay? You've got different tools uh, that you can use, but we've also got different diseases that we're seeing in some cases. And, and so Mother Nature is always changing, we're always changing, it's just a very changing world. There are some new diseases on the horizon that some of you may already be dealing with to some degree. Tar spot of corn, I, I left Illinois just at the right time. I left in, in July of 2015 and then it came in a little bit later that year into Illinois. And it hasn't quite got down to Kentucky, but it's getting close. Target spot of soybean, that's another disease that we're starting to see, especially in, in Kentucky and some states to the south of me. 
We'll just kind of talk about those briefly here. Tar spot, I'm sure some of you, I saw a lot of Illinois name tags when I was on the, on the elevator coming down today, so I know that some of you may be dealing with this disease. Uh, it was certainly, a, certainly an issue last year, according to my colleague, uh, Dr. Nathan Klachewski, who's, who's now at the University of Illinois and who graciously, graciously sent me these, these pictures. Tar spot is, is this disease that was first found in 2015 in, in Illinois and in Indiana. And you can kind of see the distribution of it in 2018 now. It's, it's in, uh, I think, six different states, if I counted right there, five in the, in the Midwest, and then it, it showed up in Florida as well, which I think is very interesting. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done to figure out the epidemiology of this pathogen. But it, it's aptly named tar spot because it actually looks like little spots of, of tar that are a little bit slightly raised that are on the leaves. That first year this was found, it was just kind of a curiosity. It came in very late. But this last season in, in places in, in, in northern Illinois and in uh, northern Indiana and some other places, Wisconsin, it was showed up early enough where there, there was likely yield loss occurring. So there's always things on the horizon that, that we need to, to keep our eye out for. And to be honest with you, there's, there's not enough. You know, I work in extension. And there's, we just don't have enough feed on the ground anymore. And so I, I rely on a lot of my industry partners as well as farmers to, to help me know what's going on. And so if you see new things happening, be sure you let somebody know about it so that information can get to other people. Target spot, this is a, a relatively new disease caused by this Cornespora cassicola pathogen, a fungus. My colleague, Dr. Travis Foskey, uh, down at the University of Arkansas, has been dealing with this disease for about four years now. And a couple of years ago, it was pretty devastating. And, and they're having a difficulty uh, finding a fungicide that works very well. It looks like the, the strobilurins are, don't seem to be working real well against this disease. Sounds like the triazoles are a little bit hit and miss. But it does sound like, according to uh, Dr. Fasky, that, that some of the new chemistries, the SDHI fungicides that we're seeing, seeing registered now are having some efficacy on this. So that's, that's good news. But this is the, kind of the scenario I'm seeing in, in Kentucky, at least, is I'm finding this disease, and you can see these spots on this leaf, and it's called target spot because it produces this round lesion or spot that has concentric rings. So like something you would you know, shoot, at, shoot, at, shoot at, like a target, okay? So that's what it looks like, but in Kentucky, I'm finding it coming in kind of late. So in, so far, it hasn't really been an economic problem in where I am, but states to just to the south of me in Tennessee and Arkansas, this has been a major concern. So I'm, I'm getting ready for this to become more of an issue in Kentucky as well. It sounds like part of this might be variety related as we are always kind of switching germplasm and, and really trying to, to breed for certain things. Sometimes we get caught off guard in some other areas. And so there are, certainly are some varieties that tend to be a little bit more susceptible to this disease than others. So we have those new diseases that can come in, but we also have those old diseases where we can have these new twists that can happen that can complicate things. Once we think we have it figured out, we have some kind of complication that comes in that makes these diseases a little bit harder to manage. So we can have you know, new races of a, of, a, uh, of a fungus, of a pathogen uh, that can happen where our, our genetic resistance is no longer effective. We're seeing that somewhat with the northern corn leaf blight pathogen, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. 
Fungicide resistance is another thing that's, that's happening in some soybean pathogens, especially where we're having to think about other ways to manage or, or being sure that we have the right chemistry groups in the products that we're using to manage those diseases. And then, of course, our environment is changing as well. We, we have got, you know, in some cases, we've got what we used to consider tropical diseases like southern rust that in some years can make its way, you know, all the way up into central and northern Illinois where the weather is not necessarily tropical. So there's things that can happen where these old diseases, there's kind of a new twist where we're starting to see those. Let's talk about northern corn leaf blight just for a minute. This was a picture I took in southern Illinois down in Saline County, not, not far from where I'm, I'm from. I had to, I'm glad there was nobody behind me because if you've got a plant pathologist that's driving down the road and looks over at a field and sees this much northern corn leaf blight, they're gonna hit the brakes, okay? So I hit the brakes and pulled over and, and had to take a picture. This obviously was a very susceptible variety uh, that, or hybrid that was, that was planted. So you can see all those big lesions out there on, that, on, that, uh, on those leaves. Historically, this was a disease that we, for the most part, we could manage with genetic resistance. And we still can, but it's become a little bit more complicated. There are different races of this pathogen, and those races allow this pathogen to kind of overcome some of our genetic resistance. So not to get too complicated here, but just to kind of show you a scenario, here's a, here's a leaf, a corn leaf that's got northern corn leaf blight, and you can see a little bit different symptoms. So those, those top symptoms there, and I've got that arrow saying race zero, that's what those, those lesions should look like when our genetic resistance is working. This, this hybrid has what we call the HT1 gene that provides some resistance to uh, northern corn leaf blight. And when you have that with a race zero of the pathogen, you're going to get a little bit of a disease, but it's going to be chlorotic. It's going to be yellow. And so it's not going to have as big of an impact on yield. Down here at the bottom, we see what I've got, I've called race one. That's a necrotic lesion. That's dead tissue, not yellow tissue. That's dead tissue. That means that that part of that leaf is not going to have any photosynthetic uh, activity. Okay? So it has a much bigger effect on, on yield. So in this case, that means that our genetic resistance is no longer working when we have that race one. So just to kind of go back in history here a little bit, there was some uh, a research that was published about, well, back in 2004 when it was published, but it was based on work that was completed in 1994. So what is that, over 20 years ago, I guess, right? And so what they did, they were able to take all these isolates of this northern corn leaf blight fungus, and they, they went into the greenhouse, and they could characterize what races of this fungus were present from that those isolates that they used, they found that about 80% of those isolates were race zero. What that means is our resistance still worked. Our HT1 genetic resistance still worked on 80% of the population that was out there. And about 20% was race one, which meant it could overcome our genetic resistance. So we're still pretty good, 80%, that's, that's not bad. But then fast forward to some work that we recently published going up through 2014, so another 10 years later, basic, or 20 years later, and we now see that our race zero, which was kind of this, I don't know what you call that, light blue, I guess, it's now only 21%, so it, it almost shifted, and most of our races are race one or something else, so we've got about 80% 
of the isolates that are out there now that can overcome our genetic resistance that we typically use. So we have this different kind of thing happening out there. We have this race shift where our genetic resistance isn't working as well as it used to. And of course, that's made things a little bit more complicated with this HT1 gene now not as effective as it used to be. Corn breeders are now relying more on quantitative type resistance where we won't see races develop, but there has to be a lot of genes together to, to, to move and breed. Now they can do that a little easier with some of the molecular methods that they have now, but it does complicate things a little bit. Also with this quantitative type resistance, that generally doesn't provide complete resistance. So we just see you know, smaller lesions instead. So we can still get some yield loss even, even though we've got a, a hybrid that has a, a certain level of resistance. So because of this, foliar fungicides have maybe become a little bit more uh, part of the equation in managing uh, northern corn leaf blight because of these changes in the race situation and our genetic resistance not working quite as well. Fungicide resistance is an issue that we're certainly seeing in soybean. Probably the biggest issue, at least that, that I'm dealing with, is the fungus that causes frog eye leaf spot, and that's, that's known as Cercosporus sogena. Frog eye leaf spot is, is probably the most damaging foliar disease uh, that, of soybean that we see in Kentucky, and I would probably throw in southern Illinois, southern Indiana, western Tennessee, eastern Arkansas, kind of that area is, is, uh, is where we see this as being a, a, a consistent year-in, year-out problem. Although we can find frog eye leaf spot all the way up into Wisconsin and Iowa and even South Dakota, uh, last year I had it. So this may be a disease that we're starting to see in places that we didn't always see too much of. But it causes these spots on the leaves and uh, of course you know the more spotted up a soybean leaf is uh, that means there's the less photosynthetic area there for for the plant to produce those needed carbohydrates to to fill the seed. And so that's how we end up with yield loss. In some situations if you look at this picture over on the right uh, once we get to about 50% or so of that leaf area affected, we actually begin to see those leaves start to crinkle. So if you look at the leaves in the background that are a little bit out of focus in that picture, you can see how they're starting to, to crinkle up. And, and that's a situation where it's unfortunately it's not that uncommon to see uh, when somebody grows the wrong variety. And uh, that's a situation where, where obviously we would have some yield loss in those cases. Back in 2010, when I was still at the University of Illinois, the, the Illinois Soybean Association funded a project where my lab was looking for strobilurin fungicide-resistant strains of this frog eye leaf spot pathogen. And in 2010, we, we did happen to find some, some of these resistant isolates in five different counties, a couple down in southeastern Illinois, uh, one in western Kentucky, and then a couple of fields in West Tennessee. So that's what this resistance scenario looked like in 2010. With some funding from the United Soybean Board, we continued to, to do some of this work, and you can kind of see what it looked like up through 2015. So we added a lot more states now, a lot more areas that have these uh, strobilurin-resistant strains of the frog eye leaf spot pathogen. And this is the most current look at that, uh, 2017. All those, so all those uh, colors represent a different year that we first found it. Um, so the most recent year that's up there is 2017, which is kind of that, I don't know what you call it, aqua or teal maybe color. 
And you can see that we added, in 2017, we added a pretty important state in regards to soybean production. Iowa is now, now part of this party uh, where we're finding strobilurin fungicide resistance, okay? Now, you may look up there and you may say, well, my county's not colored in, so I'm safe. I don't have to worry about it. That's not accurate. That just means that we never got any samples from the county that you're in. What, I'm, what we're really finding is anywhere you've got frog eye leaf spot, it's highly likely that at least part of that population is gonna be resistant to strobilurin fungicides. So if you are a farmer that has to deal with frog eye leaf spot year in and year out, then that's something that you really need to consider. Uh, in total, uh, we've now found this in 14 different states and have confirmed it in 240 counties or parishes if you're in Louisiana. But it's probably in a lot more than that. We just haven't looked in every, every single county. So I've, I've been, um, since 2010, when we began to, to find these resistant isolates, I, I've been putting together uh, fungicide trials for several years now in Illinois and then now in Kentucky. And uh, we've found, we've done a lot of work looking at our timings on when the best time to apply is. And overall, we find that at that R3 or, or the beginning pod development stage, tends to be about the, the, the right timing to get the best protection at the most important, at a very critical part of the uh, soybean growth stages. So that's kind of what we target. And of course, I'm a plant pathologist and I want to, to be able to uh, get good efficacy data. So I do some things that hopefully that you don't do, don't do all of these at least. I plant a susceptible variety. Uh, it's actually one that I usually try to find the most susceptible variety I can and plant that. And then I don't rotate. I plant continuous soybean, okay? And then one thing that I hope you do do is, is no-till, okay? So I also do no-till here, but in my situation where I'm not rotating, uh, it means I have to leave a lot of that inoculum right on the soil surface, okay? So I do those three things. I don't think, I'm probably the only plant pathologist in the room, so I'm probably the only one that should be doing all those things. If you're doing all those things, you probably need to change something in that system so you don't get as much disease as I do. But because of all that, we do get severe frog eye leaf spot pressure in our trials. And I can show you data from, from several years, but I just kind of cherry picked one year where we had good yields as well as high disease levels. And so this was some research from 2016 at Princeton, Kentucky, and you can see where, where I'm located up there on the map. That's Caldwell County, that's, that's highlighted, and that's where Princeton is, is located. And so it may be a little bit hard for you to read this from the back, so I'll kind of walk you through it. What we're looking at here is frog eye leaf spot severity. So again, we spray at R3, and then we, we go back to those trials about four to six weeks later, and, and we rate at least one or two more times. Uh, and, and the way we do that is we look at the upper third of the canopy, because those are the most important leaves at that timing, and we estimate what percent of that leaf area is covered by these lesions or spots. So that first bar there is our non-treated check, and you can see that it's just, it's about 40% of that leaf area is affected. So that's quite a bit of disease. That's enough where we're gonna see a yield response. This next fungicide here is headline, and above that I have QOI. QOI is just the abbreviation for the chemistry class, the strobilurins, okay? And you can see with that strobilurin fungicide, uh, we got a slight reduction, but if you look at the statistics here, that really was not statistically different than our untreated check, okay? So what happened here? Why did we not get a, a reduction in disease with that fungicide? Remember, it's a strobilurin fungicide. 
and so we have resistance to that chemistry class, okay? So obviously in this field, we had a high level of resistance, and so that fungicide didn't work. The good news is, when we start looking at these other chemistry classes, you see DMI there, that's the abbreviation for a triazole fungicide. We also have an MBC fungicide, which means it's a benzimidazole. So once we, and SDHI is also up here, so once we start looking at some of these other chemistry classes, we're able to get a reduction in disease, which is good news that we have other tools in our arsenal that we can, that we can use to help manage this disease. Uh, hopefully, we'll, we'll continue to uh, add to that arsenal where we're going to get some additional fungicide active ingredients from some different chemistry classes. But in that scenario where we have uh, that high uh, level of disease, if we were able to uh, uh, apply a fungicide that had good efficacy, you can see that we ended up with a, a pretty good yield response. In some cases, almost 20 bushels per acre compared to our untreated check. Now, this, is, this may not be the scenario that you see in your own field. Again, keep in mind that I have very high disease levels uh, in this trial, uh, but if you were to happen to have those kind of disease levels, you would probably see these type of yield responses as well. Um, also, just again, looking at that solo strobilurin product, we didn't really see a yield response with it as well. So even though you know, sometimes the message may get lost in some cases, about you know, why we should be spraying a fungicide. A lot of us just want, we do it for yield response, okay? Keep in mind that a lot of that yield response comes from controlling a disease. So here's a situation here where that, that fungicide was no longer effective, and so we, we are not getting a yield response. If you're listening to this podcast and it's got you thinking about additional ways to protect your corn, soybeans, wheat, and other row crops, you'll find plenty of practical tips, techniques, and ideas for preserving your yields at the National No-Tillage Conference. Now through January 31st, register early and you can save $130 off the registration cost. The 2020 National No-Tillage Conference will be held at the St. Louis Union Station Hotel with the conference room blocked to open after February 1st. To register or for more information, go to www.notillconference.com. And don't forget, register by January 31st to save $130 and beat the next price increase. Now we'll conclude this podcast as Carl Bradley shares some tips on soybean variety choices and fungicide management when potentially dealing with the risk of frog eye leaf spot treatment suggestions for southern rust and corn, and valuable disease-fighting information being provided by plant pathologists at the Crop Protection Network website, www.cropprotectionnetwork.org. Okay, so what, what you're looking at here is adding in the varieties into part of that equation, along with fungicides for frog eye leaf spot management, Here's a trial that I conducted across several locations in Kentucky uh, looking at some different varieties. We had a susceptible variety, a moderately resistant variety, and a resistant variety. And then I applied fungicides on top of that. And basically what I want to point out here is if you're growing a resistant variety, sometimes uh, you may not need a fungicide, depending on what disease, disease pressure is showing up. So if you're dealing with frog eye leaf spot year in and year out, you may be able to choose a variety that's gonna be resistant enough where it may not warrant the need for a fungicide. 
But there's another way to look at this as well. We've got a susceptible variety over here, and you can see when we sprayed, in this case, Quadris Top, we had a pretty good yield response. In that situation, you really got to do the economics. Was I better off planting a susceptible variety with a high yield potential and then spraying it with a foliar fungicide? Or was I better off just not applying a fungicide and using a resistant variety? So knowing about the yield potential of your varieties as well as the host resistance level are, are both important. Okay, I want to end up here talking about southern rust of corn. Uh, we, we talked briefly about it uh, at the beginning. Uh, this can be a, a one of the primary diseases. We've had issues with it in Kentucky, and, and when I was in Illinois, uh, there was a couple times in southern Illinois where it was an issue. Uh, this does not overwinter in the Midwest. Uh, it really, uh, really not much in the U.S. at all. It survives on, on corn that's grown year-round in Latin America, and the prevailing winds will push spores up uh, to, will push them northerly, and uh, it depends on basically the growing, the, the how, how, where we are uh, in regards to growth stage when those spores end up landing in, in places like Indiana. Of course, this can be a very explosive disease. You can see here in this picture, there's a lot of pustules there. There's about 1,300 pustules. And within one pustule, you can have up to 5,000 spores. So if you start doing the math there, um, you've got 5,000 spores per pustule, 1,300 pustules per leaf. Let's say you've got 15 leaves per plant. And this is kind of a low seeding rate, but let's just go with it, 26,000 plants per acre. That would mean that you would have about 2.5 trillion spores being produced per acre. So that's a lot of inoculum that this, this pathogen can produce. And that's why in years like in 2016 in Kentucky, we had a real issue with this disease because we had the right environment. It came soon enough uh, in the growing season where, where we were having a real issue with it. The other thing to add in here is it only takes about 10 days from that spore to land and cause an infection and then produce additional spores. So under this perfect scenario for this disease, it can be very explosive. Fortunately, we have some good fungicides that we can use to manage this disease. And we also are now starting to see some levels of resistance in our hybrids. A few years ago, I would say that every hybrid was very susceptible. Now we're starting to see some differences the Crop Protection Network, you might want to write that down. If you just Google Crop Protection Network, that's a place where a lot of extension and plant pathologists like myself are putting up some information. We have this corn fungicide efficacy guide that's up there. And if you look at southern rust, which is here, you probably can't read that, but you see anywhere from fair to good to excellent. Okay, so we do have a lot of products here that's going to provide a pretty good level of efficacy. We, we have, uh, you know, one or two that may provide even an excellent level of efficacy. So we certainly have fungicides that can help. The question we always get is how late is too late? So lots of, lots of times the scenario is southern rust came in and my corn is already, at the, at, is already denting. Do I need to do anything? And the answer is no, that would probably be too late. So we have this chart developed as well that you can get off of that crop protection network. But basically what we see is if it comes in at R3, which is milk or before, then it may be worthwhile to treat with a fungicide. If it comes in after that milk stage, then it's probably late enough, though, even though the, the disease may get pretty severe, that's probably late enough at that point in time that it's not gonna have a very big impact on, on yield. Because of the way this disease moves from south to north, we can actually track it, and that really helps us 
make decisions on if we need to spray a fungicide or not. Now keep in mind, you know, crop rotation, tillage system, all those things don't really matter for this disease because it's not overwintering in our fields. So you can go to this uh, iPipe program that we call. It's, it's uh, this, this, you can just Google iPipe and you can see where southern rust is in the U.S. Uh, those observations come from extension specialists like myself and believe it or not, they actually come from people like you as well. We use Twitter uh, to, to uh, see how people are talking about southern rust and we'll track down people that's reporting it and, and we'll confirm it and we'll use some of that information as well to go up on that site. So basically kind of putting it all together, field crop diseases are always a threat. Uh, and under, under a no-till system, it, it, the risk may elevate a little bit because of the, 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 uh, the risk of the, uh, the diseases that are coming from the stubble. We have changes that are always occurring that can result in new diseases or new twists in, in diseases. And so it's always important to, to measure, uh, you know, your, your disease risk for each situation and, and, uh, and manage, manage those diseases as appropriate. We'd like to sincerely thank University of Kentucky plant pathologist Carl Bradley for sharing important data and management tips that no-tillers can potentially utilize on their farm to protect their crop from disease issues and optimize yields. To listen to more podcasts about successful no-till strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Yeda Manufacturing, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, feel free to drop me an email at jdauberstein at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2430. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer, with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R, and on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For Carl Bradley and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Senior Editor John Dauberstein. Thank you for listening. <music>